Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the On Deck Fellowship. Um, we are very lucky to have uh, Keith Raboy, a uh, good friend of On Deck and supporter from day one and investor. Keith, as you know, the On Deck Fellowship is a group of people who are looking to start or join their next thing. He's known On Deck for years. And we, this is the second cohort, official cohort that we've done. We have not yet had Keith lead an investment in an On Deck company, but we hope to have that soon. Uh, <laughs> I personally invested in, in five companies from the first cohort through, through Village Global, and Founders Fund led one round, uh, which was placement, Sean, Sean Lenahan's company. But we will know when we are uh, hitting our stride once Keith gets on board. And so we're here to talk about um, the earliest stages. Um, you know, people here are looking for co-founders, are evaluating ideas. And so I thought I'd ask the question that is uh, most relevant uh, to, to begin to, uh, to everyone here and is on everyone's mind which is um, that there's rumored to be a uh, private equity group trying to buy out Barry's boot camp. And I'm wondering if that's uh, if you're behind it. Uh, $700 million. And uh, is that you, Keith? How, how are you thinking about it? No, that's way too boring a business. Um, like, uh, but uh, yeah, I saw some journalist was tweeting about it. It was kind of amusing. That that's why we're raising allegedly to be raising a growth fund. Yes. But uh, I, w- I wish I'd done the seed round, though. That might have been a better idea. Yeah. Um, I just uh, did fund something similar can't talk too much about it, but directionally similar. Is it the food and nutrition combination that you've been? No, it's more in the meditation space. Meditation space. Wow. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, when you work with founders who are uh, you know, day zero uh, in sort of navigating the idea maze, and if you come to mind, uh, Rishi Mandel, who's now with Future, who's an EIR at Kosla when you were there, and Michael Boswell, uh, who just launched uh, his latest project, um, who was an EIR while you were there. Um, maybe those as examples we can get to others. I'm curious what your advice is for, for founders who know they want to be founders, don't yet have the idea, have maybe spaces they're excited about, they don't even have co-founders yet, and are sort of navigating idea mazes in different sectors at once and just thinking about, hey, how do I think about what, what's the idea I want to pursue? H- how do you advise soon-to-be founders or founders and in, in going in that process? I mean, you're going to get me in trouble because uh – Generally, I don't like those kind of founders. Um, as a general matter, I like people who have a very specific idea yep. that they want to pursue and they can't stop sleeping. You know, the proverbial, I can't sleep at night, I can't stop proselytizing, et cetera. And they must do this with their lives. And it's just a question of with who should they do it, mm-hmm. not should they do it. There are obviously like all rules in venture capital, all rules in Silicon Valley are made to be broken. So there's exceptions where that's worked. But typically, I prefer people who are very specific. And they may discover some edges that aren't quite polished and they may polish those edges and it may look a little bit different than when they started. But the direction of the idea was already sort of in their mind, maybe before they left their prior job. This was true of like LinkedIn. Uh, Reed had um, this idea of LinkedIn, a professional network in his mind every day at PayPal for the last year and he was just waiting to try it. Um, he had some other, he had two other ideas that he liked also. Fortunately, they're kind of on the ash heaps of history. Um, was one of them dating? 
Because no, 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 he had done an early dating site in the '90s, um, Social Net. No, the one was a book, which when might have sold well, but it certainly wouldn't have been, you know, twenty-four billion dollar business. Um, and the other one was really bad, <laughs> really bad. Okay, you'll have to tell me. So one thing we could do is, if they are EIRs, what we'll try to help do is filter the ideas. Um, like if I were you, I might do this one, not yeah, that one. Totally. But he he had a burning ambition. Open Door took, you know, I've been sleeping on it for ten years, yeah. which I wouldn't recommend waiting ten years either. Um, so those are probably the extremes, um, but uh, definitely was something I'd been thinking about for literally a decade before we right. got it off the out the you know sort of off, off totally off the ground or whatever. And so how about Rishi and, and Michael? And maybe maybe the, the better way to say it is you have a few ideas that you're excited about and that you've been thinking about for a long time, and it's which one do you pursue? Yeah, so you can definitely vet some of them. Some of them are easier to vet than others, like consumer co- products and. Certainly Boswell Q is a consumer product. Rishi started that way. It's more now an enterprise product in some ways, um, or certainly an enterprise distribution. It's a lot easier to vet enterprise ideas than it is consumer ones. Consumer ones, you may just have to build the damn thing, you know, get some real users and see what happens and see what they try to do, see what they like versus like, you know, top down analysis. The general filter I use truthfully is the more ambitious, the better. I think startups have roughly the same amount of pain to go from zero to one, regardless of whether one is a $1 billion company, a $100 million company, a $10 billion company, or a $100 billion company. Yeah. So you basically have this fixed cost of pain. So you might as well do something important because the pain is going to be the same. Right. So you might as well get the outcome that offsets yeah. the pain. Um, so I tend to like things that are super ambitious that almost are ridiculous, meaning like one of the reasons why I haven't funded any on-deck ones is I think they're not ridiculous enough. Mm. Like I have this sort of saying internally, both at KV and now at FF, a founders fund, that I want half of my VC friends to laugh at an investment I make. Yeah. And if half don't laugh, it means I'm not taking enough risk and the, the project, projects aren't ambitious enough. I don't want all of them to laugh, but I want half. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So let's take one specific example. Maybe it's Rishi, maybe it's Boswell, maybe it's someone else where they're excited about a specific space. Maybe it's Rishi and fitness, although maybe he was thinking about nutrition too. I'm not sure. And how do you sort of advise them to narrow in on what's the first you know wedge or use case or, or first product they should build? Yeah, so I mean – one is like the idea maze. I mean, Balaji still has the, you know, the canonical explanation of this in his lecture notes from a Stanford startup engineering course that, you know, Chris Dixon summarized in a blog post a couple of years ago. But, um, the intellectual maze, which is you really want to understand a market and opportunity well enough that you can walk anybody through with the trap doors, the history, what looks alluring and what isn't, what, what's the real pr- uh, path to the prize. And once you master something so well, then I think you're ready to do it. Like, so open door. I still can walk into a meeting at Open Door and be pretty, pretty knowledgeable on any topic, um, despite, you know, not being there full time and despite the fact that there's 1600 people that are there full time because I spent a decade thinking about it. So there's yeah. almost nothing in a decade that doesn't uh, occur to you. Right. Um, it's sort of like if you've seen these prison movies when you're in prison and you're writing in your cell all the time. You think about a lot of things. So yeah. if you think about it, stew on an idea for a decade, you've thought through a lot of permutations and all the corner cases. And you know when someone says something, it's like, aha, I actually have a solution to that because I was actually thinking about that you know a year ago in my sleep. Another, a company you funded recently is Bungalow. Yeah. And so I'm curious how you nav- – I'm sure you looked at Common. I'm sure you looked at all the companies in, in that space. How did you sort of as an investor navigate the idea maze of, hey, this wasn't quite the right approach, but Bungalow sort of hit on, hit on the money? Yeah, Bungalow is a good example because it was a competitive market, which is typically not what Founders Fund does. Um, you know, if you've read Zero to One, we like monopoly markets where there's no competition in theory. You know, I funded them earlier, uh, the seed – uh, sorry, the Series A round at Kosla, and then we just led the B – 
at Founders Fund, and it wasn't a canonical Founders Fund investment, but they had a very specific approach um, that I felt had a major strategic advantage vis-a-vis all the other competitors that had tried sort of co-living before. By the time we did the B, so recently, their growth was incredibly impressive. They are actually larger than all the other co-living companies combined. So they'd already you know, sort of figured out a formula, but not that wasn't true when I invested in the A. They were smaller, actually, than all the others, or maybe with a, a higher growth rate. But they had a very specific approach to the market that I don't know if I'll talk about publicly as much as much detail, but they had a strategic insight that all the other companies were not following. 90% of the other companies were not following. And so I felt the other ones were creating a commodity product and that there was a way to create a non-commoditized product that they were pursuing. And then like anything else I've invested in, we really like the founding team. We thought they had a good DNA, their, their growth rate, they're, they're somewhat inexperienced, but their growth rate was off the charts and has continued to be off the charts. Uh, so the team plus an original idea um, an original vision that translated to um, economic leverage, if it yep. worked, was good enough to write sort of the Series A check. The B check was mostly based upon traction. Yeah. And so going back to uh, uh, Q and Future Fit, Boswell and Rishi's idea, what was ridiculous enough about about those ideas? Well, Q is great because everybody's tried. You know, Q is basically an app that allows you to plan social stuff with your friends. This is like there's like three ideas that everybody has in college. That yeah. every every entrepreneur in college wants to do the same damn three ideas, and yeah. they always fail. And didn't Rishi work on a variation of that? Pro- yeah, he did actually. You know, it's dumb enough to fund it. Yeah. Um, this company called Soch. Um, but yeah, like so, you wind up with these. There's these common refrains of like, "Oh, I want to go out with my friends. Where should I go?" And they always fail. And it felt like um, Michael at least had an original vision that was distinct from the people that had failed and at least had some ideas about why the people previously, all the people that had tried this had failed. It doesn't mean his form is going to work, but at least he was consciously aware of why the other ones had failed. And then eventually someone will create a product that's a pseudo-social calendar. Uh, whether calendar is the right term, you can debate. But there is a human um, human desire to find something interesting to do with blocks of time. Like that, that's an inevitable formula. So maybe I'll compare this to like DoorDash. So when DoorDash, uh, Tony had been an intern of my, had been an intern of mine on my team at Square. And when he told me he wanted to do like this food delivery thing, I looked a little quizzically at him. Like, are you sure? You know, kind of reaction. And then I thought about it and, and immediately this, this kind of comment that Andrew Mason, um, founder of Groupon had said publicly a while ago, sort of sticking in my brain. Where Andrew had said there's only should be only two buttons on your phone, one is on board and one is I'm hungry. And as Rishi was, ex- I mean, if not Rishi, as uh, Tony was explaining this, I was like, oh, this could be the I'm hungry button. And I'm like, yeah, I'm hungry button. Well, that's a pretty big market. Um, now the hard part is, can you fucking do this? Like, yeah. you know, broad selection, affordable, consistent delivery. You know, all those are really hard, but the demand was infinite. Like I was like, if you could do that at an affordable price reliably. People will click that button all day long. And so then the question was, could Tony and his original team, which included Evan, Moore, and you know his two other co-founders, were they the people that could figure out whether it was possible to actually do this? And the answer in my mind was yes. They had the right skill sets for what that was, which is really a logistics and math problem. You could break down why that's true. But then all of a sudden, lights went off and like, oh, this is a no-brainer investment as a seed round. Yeah. And how do you think about people who come with a problem they're passionate about or they've, they've experienced personally, either the past company or as a user consumer? And then when you think, you know what, this is a problem, but it's just not big enough. And if you, you know, search this adjacent problem, for example, people who have some, you know, niche problem in healthcare or something, like a huge market, but just trying to tackle the, the wrong problem. Are there times where you sort of edit the idea 
a little bit? And, and what, what does that look like? I don't think problems are usually like, I don't do like TAM analysis for yeah. the most part or maybe ever. Now, maybe that's somewhat intuitive, which is like reacting to an idea yeah. and like kind of triangulating to math rather than actually bottom up building a spreadsheet or something. But I think actually the real issue with TAM is you don't create something that creates enough economic transformation so you don't capture enough value. Yeah. So it's not that there's not enough people or enough customers. It's that you capture such a small amount because what you do is so marginally valuable yeah. that it's hard to add up to be a massive company. So the value proposition basically is too weak. So what I would basically reframe the problem back to a founder would be how do you make the value proposition more compelling? And if the value proposition is more compelling, you're going to capture more. So basically, you typically capture between 10 and 30% of the value you create. Yep. Like across all software companies for 50 years, it's somewhere between 10 and 30%. So make the amount you capture really large, and then 10% of that can be a big number, and that can be fairly substantial. The same thing is true of sales cycles. As your value proposition becomes more succinct and more powerful, sales velocity increases. So long sales cycles are a function almost always of a poor value proposition, yeah. not of you know, large customers, large customers can buy something. If you can solve wall, you know, if you can make Walmart's revenue grow by 10%, they will buy your product really fast. Yeah. They're very capable of buying it 30 days or less. They just don't usually believe that you're going to move one of the top three business needles for them. Cause it's actually quite difficult to move a top three metric for Walmart. Anyway, the, the basic point is the, to me, it's the question of the magnitude of the value proposition yeah. and what does that do to the pre-existing world? And if it's a massive transformation, hence my point about ambition and ridiculousness, if it's going to be a massively transformative, a lot of people will think that's silly or can't work or is impossible. But then you're typically likely to capture enough and then you add up to real money pretty fast versus like this is just too quote unquote small. The small thing becomes a filter more if there's some obvious reasons – why it just can't translate. Yeah. There are some things that are self-contained where they don't really apply to the rest of the market uh, around that, that, but that's pretty rare actually. I've only, I, I was thinking in seven years, almost seven years of the VC, have I ever really rejected anything on a TAM? Probably not. Mm. I can't think of an example where everything else like seemed like good, right. but the TAM was like felt small. Yeah. Have you worked with any founders that you uh, that have had to pivot? Um, oh, of course, yeah. And so, <laughs> what what is that conversation like? When do you does you as a founder realize, hey, this isn't the right direction to go to? We need to do something totally different. Typically, it's a yeah, you know, sort of it's a result of frustration. Yeah. So you know, something's not working. The velocity of growth isn't there. The velocity of sales isn't there. You know, something's amassed. And for a persistent period of time. But like how a, do you determine whether it's an execution problem or it's actually the market's not there? Yeah, I think usually you try. I mean, it's like trial and error. Yeah. You try all your – it's like right on the whiteboard. What are my 10 best ideas to change this? Yeah. And you kind of go like through them in some order. And at some point, you hit diminishing marginal returns. Like usually you have your best ideas first or you know, in, in some list. And so if you get through your top 10, nothing seems to be changing. It's unlikely your 11th idea is much better than the first 10. Yeah. Now, once in a while in doing the 10, you have an epiphany. Like you see something, hear something. I had this actually happen twice today. It was the same meeting. There's, there's this company that's doing okay, but not great. And we're trying to figure out why. And I, and I was basically giving them the feedback like, look, I wouldn't just believe that your sales stuff's suddenly going to magically get better. There's yeah. an, you've had enough shots on goal. You have enough sales, unique salespeople. You have enough calls per day, et cetera. Nothing seems to really be accelerating. Yeah, you have some micro victories. And it's like, what is the root cause? Like, what's going to change the inertia for your customers? And as we started going through this conversation, the found, one of the founders looked up and he's like, well, we could try this. I'm like, 
he's like, well, well, uh, like why? I said, why? And he said, well, I have one customer who said he'll give me $10 million if I do that. I'm like, uh, I would not be sleeping if I were you. I'd be doing that right now. <laughs> like, you're kind of a struggling Series A business, and $10 million is a lot of money. <laughs> um, I'm like, go fix that and then see if he actually meant it. Um, you know, so like, you could occasionally get to this epiphany where you're like, oh, we should try that. Yeah. And then that, but if not, then either have to admit that this thing is not going to work or can you discover a path forward? An entrepreneur who's been pretty successful, I know, once said to me, it's like pivot should also, for the most part, involve some synergy between what you've learned before and what you're doing and where you're going. Like in think of the basketball terminology, yeah. you kind of have to keep one foot down. Yeah. So if you take both feet off the ground, it's not pivoting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if there's no connection to what yeah. you've been doing, um, you might be better off restarting the company yeah. in some other way. Unless you're LeBron or James Harden, at which point yeah, in which case you, you can travel all you want. You define, redefine. <laughs> so you're, you much prefer founders who have been thinking about a problem for a long time or passionate. It doesn't have to be a long time. It can be like, or you have felt the problem. You literally wake passion. up in the morning, like yeah. I'm fu- incredibly frustrated by acts. Like what right. the hell? And why does this have to be that way? Right. Cause sometimes it is an epiphany. Like I founded a healthcare company that's doing pretty well and, Part of the founding story was the guy, the founder's brother had like serious heart issues. Hmm. And, you know, as he was walking through, like, what do I have to do to help my brother? He realized yeah. this, this whole thing is a mess. And you know, so it can be like a sudden epiphany. Right. But you're more, so this might be an exce- exception. The Thumbtack team, for example, and I think one of them might be an MBA or maybe two of them might be MBAs. Yeah. And you know them did sort of a sober analysis of a bunch of different ideas and then, you know, came to the realization that Amazon for services would be a big idea. <laughs> yeah. I'm not the sober analysis kind of founder type. Like I'm usually more the, the world should be different and I'm yeah. going to will it you know, into yeah. existence kind of like top down. Like right. I just don't like X. Yeah. I want to go fix it. So for example, I have a, a group of founders I haven't funded quite yet, but I hopefully will. I want the, the specifics, but they're working on a climate change problem mm. and they're just ideologically convinced that they can fix climate change. So I'm like, yeah. great. Go tell me, you know, tell me what the first product is. Yeah. And they have some good ideas actually. And I was like, great, here's the money. You know, like, just right. tell me what you want the money. Yeah. Um, but it was more like they woke up and said, like, this is ridiculous. Like, we're, we want to fix it and we need to define the problem so that our impact is big enough. Yeah. So that people will notice. Totally. So they spec'd out, like, here's a quantitative metric right. of our first product has to move the needle this much or yeah. it just doesn't matter. That's a great example because that's, that's a market where a lot of people have lost a lot of money. In, in the last yeah. decade or so yeah. and, and beyond. So what do you think is, is different about how this group is thinking about it or, or the opportunities to pursue climate change opportunity now that maybe, you know, a whole host of startups, you know, failed a decade ago? What's, what's sort of the why now? Well, part of it's the why now is the right people. I know two of the three quite well and I, I think extremely highly of them. So I trust them to do things that other people would miss. Um, and even just how they're thinking about it, you know, usually, random startup founder walks in my office and wants to tackle something like climate change. There's usually some things they haven't thought about. Like there wasn't anything they hadn't thought about. Like they defined the problem. Well, they thought about an ambitious criteria for success. They thought about different ways of tackling the market. They were going to prioritize one or two is a quite thoughtful dive into where to start. And then they're vetting and validating some assumptions because it is the kind of market and product that you can, at least validate some things with yeah the awareness certainly the social awareness and the you know i don't know if the evidence scientific evidence is any different than it was like x years ago but like the awareness of other people that might be customers yeah. that would help contribute to the solution is is probably pretty different and that yeah. might that might move the needle for them they might get early customers they also had some proof points uh of what they're thinking about from a product perspective 
that's probably something that's happened in the last, I don't know the exact dates, but one to call it one to three years. Yeah. So the proof points of what they want to do, but if they could scale it down sort of, right. um, exists. And I don't know right. if that was true before. Where are you in the spectrum of, you know, there's the YC, you know, make something people want, talk to customers, and there's sort of the, what was the Henry Ford quote or something? If I talk yeah, to yeah, customers, I want to build faster horses. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe Steve Jobs uh, quoted him. What is, where are you on that spectrum or maybe what times do certain quotes, you know, apply better? I mean, I'm typically more of the Steve Jobsian, you know, make something and then sell it. Like I, I always talk about in terms of movies. To me, a startup's like a movie. Yep. You know, sort of write the script and then you cast the actors and you produce it, which is financing it. And then you make a trailer and you, that's how you market it. And then you sell tickets and you start with a vision and then you're sort of do all these pieces. There are occasional counter exceptions. I just funded another one where the person started the very, very narrow mm. um, product and it's become fairly addictive and it's addictive in a sm smaller community, but it definitely seems to be spreading nicely. Um, it's addictive enough that I was doing a podcast interview recently and someone asked me what my most used app on my phone was and I accidentally almost gave the answer, which is oh, wow. this, this startup product. I'm like, oh, well, he probably doesn't want me to do that. So I'm like, Twitter. <laughs> Caught myself just in time. Wow. Um, so it's pretty addictive and he's going to try to extrapolate from that. But that's pretty rare. Now, he is tackling a problem that's canonically been a failure for other people. So I think given that most people have tried the top-down yeah. approach and failed, the bottom-up approach that seems to be working might be a better path. Yeah. Um, so it, there's – like, it's the classic exceptions to every rule. The reason why I like the exception is he has evidence that it can spread in kind of a single-player-esque mode. Then it becomes yeah. a network mode. And for a consumer product, that usually predicts success. Yeah. How do you recommend people think about co-founders? Uh, you know, there's sort of the age old of, you know, why like work with someone you've known for a decade. But I wonder if it's sort of mirrored sort of advice on dating, um, which is, you know, now there's Tinder, now there's on deck. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, no, I think that's a reasonable question because look, found the classic strategy of dating yields in the U.S. like roughly a 50% divorce rate. And at least I feel like the co-founders we fund probably have roughly a 50% yeah. divorce rate. So maybe there's a better approach. Now, part of it's working together is challenging in a startup. It's a, you know, pretty tough, tough crucible. Uh, secondly, things change. The velocity of change, like a relationship actually, as far as I can tell, it's a lot easier when your relationship, uh, to have a stable relationship when things aren't changing. And it's very difficult on a relationship when one person or the other person goes through a massive transformation in their own lives. Yeah. So the more predictable environment I think is better for human like, decision making. Startups by definition are going to go through hopefully very rapid change. And so predicting what this person or people are going to be like through periods of rapid evolution, um, it may, may not be possible. So typically the way I think about founders is, is, is a different prism. Which is what are the three? What are the core risks to your company? Mm. Um, every company has different risks. Like if you wanted to compete with Elon and build rockets, it's very different than if you wanted to build a Q competitor. Yep. So what I'd like to see is somebody who's excellent, like i.e. world class, at each of the risks on the founding team. Yeah. So first, go to the whiteboard. What are the core risks to the company? List them out, and then ideally plot the current team. Yeah. against them and make sure you have kind of world-class talent against each of the right. core problems. So and if not, go get the person. Yeah. So like, for example, when we were founding Opendoor, we obviously needed a world-class data scientist. It's yeah. the core of what we do is asymmetrically price the ability of a home site unseen. Without a data scientist, that doesn't make that much sense. Eric doesn't know much about data science, but he knows a lot about real estate. 
And I know a decent amount about data science, but not enough to like build a team or really run a team, um, except at a very high level. Happen to have a good world-class data scientist in my back pocket that neither Eric nor JD, my other co-founders, had ever met before. And I was like, aha, I got just the guy for you. You should have coffee with this guy named Ian. And then you know, ping Ian. I'm like, hey, Ian, what are you doing tomorrow? And I'm like, hey, do you want to get together? So I met up with Ian. I'm like, selling one idea. Like, Eric, I'm going to introduce you to Ian. You guys should meet. And then you are off to the races. But Open Door would be terrible to pursue without someone like right. Ian. Yeah. So let's, um, whether it's Boswell or Rishi or someone else, what's an example of some core risks to, to a company like that that they need to solve? Yeah, I mean, it, it does vary. Um, like, these days, you know, a core risk that people are looking for is like some machine learning AI talent, right? Yeah. Like if you don't have one, it's pretty bad. Like, or uh, let's take a firm. So a firm back in the early days, there was a couple key risks to a firm, really mostly around underwriting. So basically the idea is a firm effectively gives financing to people who are mispriced by FICA scores or have very limited FICA scores. And that's a big market. So you have to underwrite better than FICA. That's a question of, can you get your hands on the right data? Can you model it correctly? That's one risk. The second risk, a little more subtle, is a fraud risk, which is different than an underwriting risk. Underwriting is basically the person wants to pay you. They just don't have the money. Fraud is someone's intentionally abusing the fact that you can get this product online now, and then they'll figure out how to walk away from it with like a fraudulent identity or something. The core team had both the underwriting and fraud experience, and it would have been disastrous actually to do the company without both mm. because even if you got the underwriting right, you would lose too much money on the fraud side. Max is pretty good himself and certainly knows enough to be dangerous, but his co- original co-founder, this guy Nathan Gettings, who'd run risk and fraud at PayPal with me um, back in the day, and then also co-founded Palantir. So he's probably the single best person on the planet to build the beginning of this. Yeah. Um, that made it immediately fundable. Yeah. You know, there are times where, you know, you'll meet the right founder and say you're missing, you know, you're missing somebody on the team. Is that, is that you basically aligning the core risks to the, to the team? Yeah, all the time. I mean, that's the best feedback. So sometimes we'll invest anyway, and then yeah. we'll work with the founder to go yeah. recruit the person. Yeah. Because sometimes, like, the problem is a, net, sometimes it's a network problem of, like, let's talk, I'll give you the Stripe example, which is kind of in the public domain. One of the first 10 employees at Stripe was their general counsel, which is pretty rare. Mm-hmm. But they needed a, someone who's a world-class general counsel um, to streamline the product. There is a, sort of a navigation around partner dependency and regulatory dependency. And had they not found this guy named John, who's an excellent lawyer, um, they would have been in deep trouble very fast and maybe never gotten out of it. So under not every founder, though, knows how to find a general counsel, so source certainly doesn't know how to assess a general yeah. counsel and then may or may not know how to close one. So one thing an investor can do is help you with that. Like yeah. I have a network of GCs. I certainly know how to assess GCs and can help close GCs. Same thing CFOs. CFOs are usually not that strategic early. But if you're a company like Open Door or a firm that uses debt as oxygen, so we use debt to yeah. buy properties or to loan money to consumers, you need someone who understands how to do capital markets pretty early or you yeah. just won't be able to grow because basically you're turning – this, this debt into your source of growth. So depending on what the company does, the, the skill, but a lot of engineer type founders wouldn't know how to go find a capital markets yeah. person or a CFO type person. Yeah. You just don't live in the same social networks. What, what about other do's and don'ts as it relates to uh, selecting the right co-founder and as it relates to not divorcing uh, or not, not, you know, ruining the, the co-founder relationship while also knowing that sometimes uh, you know, the co-founder relationship is, is meant to be short term or like you're, you know, that person is going to be helpful in the beginning and might not scale with the company. Is that, is that something you walk into knowing that that might happen? 
Yeah. I mean, I care more that this person who's the CEO, yeah. I have a lot of conviction and confidence in because ultimately, with very few exceptions, there's usually like one real yeah. founder who is the driving CEO. And does that person need to have originated the idea in the first place? Not necessarily. No. They need, like Eric didn't originate right. the idea at Open Door at all, but he's definitely the CEO. Yeah. So someone needs to assume the mantle of responsibility and be able to handle all that that entails. That's the most important thing that if we write a check, certainly at Founders Fund yeah. for our brand, we really care that there's one person who's the CEO that we're backing. And, you know, we don't vote to fire CEOs, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. You know, we could talk about that at length, but fundamentally, if we don't have conviction around the CEO, we're not going to invest. But how the CEO decides to edit the team over time, that's really the CEO's prerogative. Yeah. Uh, we may have feedback. There's a little bit like baseball meta- metaphor here is you have a starting pitcher who gets you, you know, call it the first, a lead in the first six innings. Typically for the last you know, 50 years in baseball, like other relief pitchers, you know, take over yeah. the game. And the art is partially knowing when you sort of need the relief pitcher. Yeah. You know, uh, Parker Conrad had this view, uh, Parker, former CEO of Zenefits, obviously, you know, had a personal experience uh, with, with venture capitalists. And he's, <laughs> he says, you know, in response to sort of this, you know, ethos of uh, the VC say, hey, it's like a marriage. He says, no, it's more like a general contractor uh, or plumber or something. Uh, you know, let them come in, do a good job, but don't let them like, you know, run away with your house or something. I don't know which general contractors he works with. I <laughs> definitely don't do, I definitely like think they run the place. But so, do you think CEOs should basically never be ousted or how does your? Well, our VA Founders Fund is we will not, you know, oust them. Typically what happens truthfully is the CEOs that get replaced lose the convic- uh, confidence of their own team. Mm. So every time I've personally been involved, it's the team below the founder or CEO that actually is frustrated as hell. Yeah. And they either threaten to quit, they actually quit, or they lobby the board yep. uh, to make a change. And the board member's VC gets kind of caught in the crossfire and yeah. someone has to make a decision. That's almost always what's happened is it's a bottom-up the, the, you know, the people doing all the work have lost faith in the CEO yeah. versus like some top down view that the CEO is not doing his or her job. Right. I want to walk through, talk about some different spaces that you've explored ideas in, built companies and invested in and talk about how you've navigated the, the idea maze th- through that. So real estate, maybe open door, you've thought about since 2003, you've invested in other companies, in real estate, obviously bungalow. Why, why was that the idea within real estate that you were so excited about? And how did you settle on that specific one? Yeah, I mean, really, it started with an idea. Peter uh, Thiel told me to go find something interesting to do in residential real estate, primary, primary residential real estate. And I said, why? And he said, well, it's the largest asset class in the world that's been unaffected by technology. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. Um, <laughs> so I went out, I went out and, you know, spent a couple of weeks, like, coming up with ideas, basically, doing exactly what I don't like. Yes. <laughs> um, um, although top down, like Peter, like, yeah. residential, primary residential yeah. real estate. So not totally directed, yeah. uh, undirected, but I worked with this guy, Steve Stegman, who had hired out of, out of Stanford. And we came up with this idea that was a little bit banal of we would basically Create something that looks like Zillow today. This is yeah. 2003, so before Zillow. And we'd basically stamp home prices on each house. And so after two or three weeks working on this, we pitched it to Peter about 30 seconds to three minutes. I can't remember exactly in the conference room. Get into the pitch and Peter's like, oh, that's so boring. <laughs> and he basically kicks us out. Wow. So I'm kind of used to this. I'd worked for Peter for two years when he was CEO of PayPal. And so Steve and I go back to our little 
office space and um steve's like i'm gonna get fired i'm gonna get fired (laughs) (laughs) and he's like terrified he's like 22 you know i hired him like uh, three years out of they could basically do a three-year degree at stanford and i'm like no don't worry don't worry it'll be fine (laughs) steve's terrified anyway the next day we come back to work and i had this like thought that well if we're gonna put damn prices on it why don't we just buy the properties like the hard part is putting the price on once you do that one we just buy them um, for the price. And it took us two or three weeks to figure out whether that was like legally possible. Yeah. Like, would there be like, was there a blocker, like a binary blocker, which actually I think is a useful exercise of not should I do this, but is there some fundamental principle of physics yeah. that doesn't allow what I want to do? And it took us two or three weeks. So it's fairly complicated. Um, and we came back and figured out we could do it. And so then we went back and pitched Peter. And this time Peter loved the idea. Yeah. So it was like, you know, night and day. There's actually lots of reasons why I liked it. But um one was it leveraged the federal government, which is yeah. awesome. Like we're basically arbitraging mortgages that are subsidized by the government. But uh <laughs> among other good things about the the vision, but it was sufficiently differentiated that yeah. it cut through the clutter. Like the criteria was it must cut through the clutter. We didn't want to spend a lot of money on paid marketing, that the idea had to be original or ridiculous enough. Like even as late as um 2013 and 14 when we launched Open Door, most people thought it was ridiculous. Certainly people in real estate state absolutely did if you read any of the trade pubs or if you asked spencer who's the ceo of zillow whether it was possible he actually said publicly it wasn't so it moved, these ideas move from you know ridiculous to very possible very quickly and now he's trying to do it right? yeah well, then, well he got fired but he's <laughs> yes. encouraged yes. his company his company is trying to do it or he didn't get fired yeah. he got just encouraged to leave or spend more time yeah. with the family or whatever whatever <laughs> one does um <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so these ideas move quickly, but Peter was really from the adamant that it had to be differentiated enough yeah. that it immediately cut through the clutter. Yeah. And basically this, it shouldn't be boring. It needs to be like so different that you have a shot totally. uh, of making it work. So Peter brings up two questions I want to ask. One is going back to founders. How about when two really talented people think that they should be the CEO? And I just want to segue to the sort of PayPal story, which I feel is like under told in some sense. There's no like, you know, Twitter like novel, you know, you hatching Twitter is sort of the yeah. CEO switch, uh, where Peter Thiel or in some group ousted Elon Musk. I mean, it's a pretty crazy story. What happened there? And we learned like when really talented people are arguing over who should be CEO. Yeah. Fortunately, it doesn't happen that often or at least in our experience. It's actually one of the reasons why VCs get caught in the crossfire. I think 80% of the negative feedback about VCs is a function of a co-founder dispute that somehow or another ends up on the desk of the VC because two people get in a fight and someone has to resolve it. And inevitably, you're going to wind up alienating somebody. Um, And there's no way around it. The more investments you make, the longer your career is. This is just going to happen. And so you wind up with like these people don't like you by definition. um, That's part of the job is definitely definitely how to do this myself. And it's never fun. Fortunately, it's not that often. Typically, either the inertia of the person who was the CEO, you know, sort of stays the CEO unless there's some, you know, major change or one of them leaves, you know, and they, they, they kind of work it out internally. But, you know, I actually have one right, not an acute one, more of a well-managed one, I'd say, where they're working through it themselves. But it's like a, you know, a divorce kind of thing and they're working through it and they want my feedback. Is this like the right answer? But my my feedback is mostly like you can make either path work. You guys yeah. just have to decide. You totally. know, you know the company right. better than I do. And if you think this is the right answer, I, I could see a theoretical uh, argument for either. 
of you staying a CEO, but I agree that both of you yeah. not being on the same page. And back to the co-founder selection, which I kind of glossed over. I think the most important thing in co-founder selection, other than is marry somebody who can help you solve a core risk, yeah. is agree on first principles. Right. Like always work with someone who agrees on first principles. You cannot be debating first principles all the time in a startup. It yeah. is incredibly destructive. So like an example, sometimes sometimes people understand what I mean by first principles. Sometimes you don't. So I'll give you an example. If you happen to be like a closed ecosystem person, think like Apple iOS, yep. you do not want to work with a co-founder who believes in open systems and, and Android-like products. Yep. You're just going to fight over every damn decision all the time. Yep. And the company's going to get absolutely nothing done while you're fighting. So you need to align on some core like principles like that. And it's fine. Either, you know, obviously you can build open stack companies that have right. done okay and you can build closed stuff, but you want to work with people who generally 90% of the time are going to be aligned on the principles. And then it's the question of the application of the principles right. to the specific facts. Same thing on people. This one's harder to test up front. You cannot build a company where the two most important people in the company are fundamentally disagreeing about the value of various other people in the company. You can have shades of difference. Like I can grade you an A minus and this other person can say you're an A. But it doesn't work if the other person thinks you're a C. Yeah. And I'm like, he's an A. That just is right. incredibly painful um, when the senior most people in the company, whether they're founders or executives, yeah. disagree. And so that is very difficult to figure out in advance if you haven't worked with someone before. So that that is a source of you know sort of unavoidable friction. But when it works and when you generally agree on how people are performing their job, it can be extremely healthy. Yeah. And in the PayPal situation, was that an example of two different views of looking at the world or? I think so. I mean, I think so. I, you know, I joined PayPal after Peter came back as interim CEO, actually. So a little detail there. Elon had been fired in August of 2000. Um, well, he was on vacation or something? Yeah, exactly. He tweeted about it yesterday, which I retweeted. <laughs> it was like, don't go on vacation. You're going to get fired. So he, he did go on vacation. He did get fired. Um, so one lesson. Was, lesson yeah. Yeah, like vacations equal firing. Um, anyway, he did go on vacation. He got fired. He was on a plane to South Africa or something. And then Peter came back as interim CEO. Now, there's a kind of a weird history that you know is a little unique that you kind of have to know to understand this, which is, Elon's company, X.com, had merged with Peter's company, PayPal, in a 50-50 merge or earlier that year. So it kind of set up an odd dynamic that you probably wouldn't have yeah. in an organically growing company. Right. So that, it was always a little odd because of that. Elon, in fact, was not even the first CEO. The first CEO is this guy named Bill Harris, um, who's the CEO of Elon's version of the company and inherited the CEO role. He lasted six weeks. Wow. So then Elon took over. Elon lasted three months, less than three months. Um, then Peter took over as interim CEO on uh, September 25th, 2000. So I joined November. So six weeks after Peter came back as interim CEO. And one of the reasons why he was interim CEO was there was enough animosity on the board that no one would give him and confer the wow. official title. He eventually got the official CEO title in January. So he did a pretty good job from September to January to convince everybody he wasn't crazy and that he could ex execute the business. But it was, you know, three CEOs in call it six months isn't you know a good sign of success usually yeah. it did work out um, Peter turned around the company and was able to make the company you know go from burning 10 million dollars a month and you know like less than three months of runway and less than three months of cash in the bank in the worst economic environment for technology ever and make the company both break even and profitable in like less than six months wow. so and then we filed our s1 to go public and blah blah and actually you know we were able to go public in 2002 which was pretty rare and was elon not executing during his elon was executing in the wrong direction the burn was going up the fraud losses were going up the brand was going down 
on the technology decisions were crazy. Like he basically alienated everybody in the company for different reasons. So the product team hated it because he wanted to rebrand the company from PayPal to X.com. Yeah. <laughs> The engineering team hated it because he wanted to build on .NET, right. uh, which is insane. And the finance people hated it because we were losing money left and right <laughs> and running out of money very quickly. And would <laughs> you look at him as CEO of XIGOT and then CEO of what's the next company he started after? I don't know, City or Tesla or something as just a radically different person or – I don't know. I mean, I'm not as close to the, you know, ground, but I think like many people, like whether it's Jack or Elon or Steve Jobs, who I don't know, yeah. um, but the other two definitely do. People learn from, yeah. you know, tumultuous experiences and they're like, the, the reaction is this is not going to happen again. Yeah. So they either change, you know, some of their approaches or get better at some things or they find a compliment, which is yeah. a key thing. It's key skill. Certainly that was the Steve Jobs path was when he came back to Apple. One of the first things he did actually under the radar was he hired Tim Cook. Yeah. Because th- one of his diagnoses of why Apple you know, Generation 1 failed was it was always an operational mess. Right. And they were losing money in unnecessary ways constantly, which is actually true. And if you sort of read the books about the history of Apple, that was definitely true. So he's like, that's not going to happen again. I'm going to get an, a world-class operational expert yeah. and we're going to have a supply chain and we're going to ship things reliably. Totally. And y- – You've been that compliment as well too. Yep. In your career, to uh, you know, lots Jack, of, lots of crazy people. Yeah, yeah. We know, <laughs> Peter, um, Peter <laughs> twice, and, and, three times. Yes, and so uh, Max Lepskin. And so is um, are you often telling startups, hey, you know, subconsciously, go find your Keith or Boyd. go find the person who's going to channel your craziness into a business equation. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's that way. It's more that a good compliment. Every founder is a little different. They have great strengths, so they wouldn't be like, especially that yeah. list. Uh, you know, is all world class and very in some some of them in multiple dimensions at the same time. But they do need a compliment. Everybody needs a compliment. Yeah, um, it's like you know basketball. So if you have a great point guard. What you're looking for is a little different than if you start with a you know center. And so you're trying to get from there. One of the things I've been able to do is pair with people and you know compliment them. And the reason why is typically I don't have my own vision. Like in other words, I've been able to convince uh, very strong-willed and opinionated people that effectively I can implement their vision versus like try to change it. If you have a slightly different vision, it's not that easy to get the confidence of somebody to be able to put down, you know, sort of train tracks in the right places because they think you might be compromising the vision. Because some of the time, sometimes the art is. I need to do X, Y, or Z before we go forward on something. And that's to make sure it doesn't blow up. Right. And if the person has, has any doubts about your fidelity to the vision, when you're like, when you're suggesting slowing down or pausing or yeah. rearranging things, they may get nervous that we're not actually going to get to the, the, their, their destination. So for me, it was pretty easy because I rarely have top down visions like I did with open door and I have one I'm kind of working on now, but it's not that common for me. Yep. So it's easy for me to subscribe to someone else's vision if it's compelling and has all, you know, sort of the core ingredients. So then I can earn the trust of, okay, um, we're definitely going to get to the point you want to yeah. get to. You just got to give me a day or a week or an hour yeah. to put like the, the fundamental pieces in place so it doesn't yeah. blow up on us. And I, w- I was going to ask, have you wanted to be the person who had your own vision as well? But you have, of course, with, with Open Door. And yet it still feels somewhat different than, say, well, I was going to say Jack, but actually Jack's running two companies at the same time too. So, but, um, you know, Eric is the CEO of that, of that vision and, you know, actually you know, full time. Obviously you're, you're very involved, but it's, um, yeah. I mean, I had the, the original insight, the top down vision on a couple and then a couple subsidiary pieces. But the most important thing there was a cut through the clutter vision. And then the question was how to make it happen. So Eric and team have been 
you know, excellent and outstanding at how to actually do this and fill in the gaps. We had some ideas. Like if you look at our seed deck, which is really just the four of us brainstorming, it reads still pretty well. I think we yeah. got the directional arc of what we needed to do, why it would work, what the key pieces would be pretty accurately. But there's a hell of a lot of moving pieces underneath the hood. Yeah. I mean, just even running a company of 1,400 people is incredibly consuming, period. Just the operational execution and management of 1,400 people you know, is a very high order bit. Totally. So then I want to come back to Peter again because he said, hey, Keith, look at residential real estate. What's your sort of Peter, you know, like insight as to when, you know, the next Keith or boy comes to, comes to your desk and says, and you say, hey, look at this. What are, what are your areas where you're saying? I don't have that many. Again, I'm more like a, what would be called a bottoms up investor, which would be, um, someone walks in and they convince you that they can see the future. Yeah. Like the world is going to be this way. Like as I talked about, like in climate yeah. change, I didn't have any ideas about climate change. I'm not even the biggest advocate for climate change work, but the people walked in and they're like, we know how to solve this. And I, okay, tell me more. And then I asked a set of questions yeah. and, the answers are pretty compelling. I'm yeah. Like, that sounds like a pretty good path. Right. Yeah. You know, so I've had a couple recently, like I'm very interested in talked about publicly in homeschooling. Yeah. Um, been trying to find companies to fund in homeschooling because under the radar for the last 30 years, it's been like probably the biggest public policy victory, um, in many ways that nobody knows about. So roughly 10% of Americans are homeschooled these days and the evidence of their performance, both academically and socially, is much better than anything else they can do. But it's a lot of friction on the parents. I mean, homeschooling is real work. And a lot of parents either don't have the time or don't think they have the time. But they also don't have the confidence. Yeah. They're a little scared about like screwing up their child. And so this is a classic thing that we can do is build products that make things easier, yeah. less friction, and give people more confidence that they're doing the right thing. But no one's done it yet. So I've been looking for that you know, right. pretty actively and hopefully making some progress there. Uh, I've been looking for something around how do you achieve your goals, which we've talked about in you know, your podcast previously, making a little less fast progress there. But you know, if the time uh, metric is 10 years, I'll definitely yeah. do it before 10 years. But we're going on three right now, so it's getting late. And you've also been curious about cybersecurity. Yeah. So I funded um, not less, less cybersecurity than cyber insurance. Um, so had a belief that cyber insurance would be an interesting market, that Silicon Valley would be well-suited to solve versus the large incumbents in the insurance space. And we found a company after about a year of searching, actually, at KV a few years ago that we funded called AtBay, which is a great company and doing very well. Um, but yeah, that was like either bottom-up or top-down. We want to find a company that can do cyber insurance. And we happen to find a pre-existing yeah. company that we could fund, which certainly makes my job easier. So how about homeschool? How have you thought about what's the right wedge or, or entry point to the market? Or, or conversely, what's the, what's the core risk? Yeah. Well, the core risk is one of the reasons or the biggest driver, I think, that parents choose homeschooling is they want to be in control. Like they have either ideological or other perspectives and they want to ensure that their kids, you know, sort of learn yep. things they want them to learn at the pace they want them to learn. The problem with a product is it homogenizes things typically, right? So it's like, how do you have something that applies that makes your life easier as a parent but it doesn't undermine the whole point of homeschooling, which yeah. is the personalization, customization, you know, individual uh, speed for the uh, kid to learn, et cetera. Very fine balance there. And I don't know the – I didn't know the answer. Partially, I wasn't homeschooled. Um, if anything, I'm the opposite of like right. you know, public school, over-degreed kind yeah. of person. But I find the – I think found a founder who was homeschooled and had a vision of what you could do without destroying the quality. Yeah. 
totally. And for you, is it important for founders to have domain expertise, or when is it important for founders? Well, it, it, you know, this is a rare example where it actually kind of was. I kind of did want a founder who'd been yeah. homeschooled. Not that I would have a binary exclusion against right. it in this case, but I felt like probably triangulating what would be the product would be pretty hard to do without a homeschooling yeah. experience. Have credibility. Yeah. Well, more about us about the credibility about like just knowing what to build, yeah. like you know having insight into what a parents really need. Now, I, I think there's ways to get there, but typically I don't like domain expertise. You know, we had, we had this talking point at PayPal that three people in the company of call it 254 people in in the Bay Area. Um, had any financial services expertise. Yeah. Um, that's it. To me, that's about the right ratio. Yeah. Um, Square is roughly the same. Um, that'd be even including me um, yeah. as like an expert. Um, and definitely wasn't. Um, but so I, people who are experts tend to know what you can't do very well. They've mastered the rules. Yeah. They typically don't ask enough why questions and why not. You know, why why can't this be done this way? Why why not? So I like people who kind of don't know what they're tackling a right. bit, and they're very fast learners though, and they find people who have the history and experience, and they can extract the key information out of them. Yeah. So they're not blind; they're just very good at figuring out what they need to learn really fast. So, for example, when I do diligence and call up an expert, I never ask the expert like what they think of X. Experts never like X. Um, uh, you know, like they're not very innovative. But I asked the following version of the question, which is, is there a reason why this absolutely cannot work? Like point – like what specifically? Point me to something that makes this impossible. And if they can't give me a very specific answer, then I'm like, I'm totally convinced it's doable. Yeah. That's interesting. Like these are a law of physics somewhere that I'm missing because I don't know physics all that well. Yeah. One idea I've sort of – you know, other people are pursuing I'm sort of just curious about – and I've tweeted about is basically I think therapy is somewhat of a racket um, in that I just think it's it's too expensive. Uh, it's unclear what expertise they have, and I'm I'm curious if you can make a market that's way more affordable for sort of volunteer listeners. If you can unbundle a, par- a part of the therapy that's like psychiatric or whatever, and just say, hey, this is a place for people to vent, for conversations, and make it twenty dollars an hour, so to speak. So this is sort of a Behavior doesn't yet exist yet or doesn't exist sort of at scale. But, but the response I get from everybody is that's what friends are for. And to me, it feels like kind of a just dumb response or like, no, they need therapy. Like, why? Because they're trained. I don't know. It doesn't feel like. So there is a version of this out of YC a few years ago called Seven, Seven Cups. Cups. Yeah. yeah. It's basically that. Yeah. It's, te- it's, te- it's text based. I'm, I'm curious for sort of in person. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 So the problem with friends is, first of all, not everybody has friends yeah, or right. doesn't have it. <laughs> or like one of the issues, at least yeah. the therapy is like not being happy with your friend situation. So that, that's one. Um, so you sort of have a problem there. It's a little circular. Second um, problem is there are issues you want to talk about that, you know, there's stigmatization to. Yeah. And like the last people you want to talk about are your friends. Yeah. So you have some challenges there as well that, you, you know, a different group would actually be better at solving. Yeah. The question I'd have is how do you confirm that it's a f- uh, the efficacy? Yeah. And how do you do that early? Like so I'd like if I was doing this, I'd want to launch with credibility yeah. and not like and have like some empirical or other convincing evidence that this works on par. So the homeschool stuff took a while. Yeah. The academic performance came in pretty quick, but then there was this, you know, uh, critique that other oh, kids are socially maladjusted. This is proven to be totally false by the way, but it took like almost like a decade of just kids growing up and then you could do all the kind of research on the kids and yep. show that they're actually more adjusted than the average normal public school or private school kid from the same demographic controlling for all demographics. Yeah. So my question would be if this is if you're right, which you may be right that you can unbundle this, how do you show that it's really effective as fast as possible? Yeah. That's interesting. And that, that to me is a response uh, an example of 
sort of a dogma that exists that doesn't really make sense that, that experts have that if you sort of take a look at me. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of expert dogma. So, for example, yeah. I funded uh, this uh, self-driving car company at both KV and now at Founders Fund that has a completely different approach than what all the AI experts like. Yeah. And at first, everybody at KV thought I was crazy because there actually are AI experts there and they thought this is insane. But I was convinced that I had found a world-class extraordinary founder <laughs> – and um, my colleague Delian yelled at me. He's like, why aren't you funding him? And Because all the AI people were going crazy. And so <laughs> he walked into my office and said, like, if you've taught me anything, it's that if you find an extraordinary founder with a big market opportunity, don't ask any questions because you're just going to make a mistake. So as I reacted, I was like, oh, shit. Uh, okay, well, he's an extraordinary founder, so give him a term sheet. Turned out, like, there's a religion in AI experts, just like there's a religion in everything else. I mean, we don't we don't always see like the internal Silicon yeah. Valley religions as well. But like if you think about it, if you didn't go to Stanford and get a PhD, or you didn't go to CMU and get a PhD, and you want to do AI, everybody dismisses you. And there's often a better approach to get from point A to point B than following the classic AI approach, which is what Google Waymo and people like that do. So I think we're going to be right on this one. Yeah. How do you think about the unbundling of LinkedIn? Uh, what, Good question. The there? Yeah, if I knew how to do it, I would do it. I've, I've funded things at the margin. Uh, back in the Coastal days, I funded uh, Piazza, which yeah. is unbundling the young up-and-coming technical talent. Probably some of the audience used uh, Piazza. Did you did testing one? Did well, we did uh, KV, a different partner of mine, uh, funded this thing, Pymetrics, yeah, which yeah. uses basically uses games and predictive algorithms to – um, identify where you're the best fit instead of interviews, which yeah. is doing quite well. It's a really good company called Pymetrics. I've done some stuff in the um, hourly worker space mm. who typically are not on LinkedIn yeah. anyway. Like imagine you're working retail or restaurants. You don't usually use LinkedIn. So it's not really debundling as much as adjacent. Right. But I've never seen something that completely replaces the yeah, LinkedIn. But is, it is it just rig up for every vertical? Just Maybe. I mean, rig up certainly a very good company. You yeah. know, we, we at Founders Fund have loved the company and then funded yeah. it, you know, for years. I don't know what the answer is. I would certainly look to, I would love to hear pitches on how to yeah. unbundle it, especially at the core of the white collar business professional. I mean, GitHub in some ways is unbundled yeah. a little bit in the software engineering world. That's like sort of the most important thing you send as an engineer is yeah. probably like links to your, get like not not like your linkedin profile yeah business people are still though like if you're a product manager you're probably sending your linkedin profile yeah so i don't exactly know how to do it but it almost surely can be done right so we at on deck are, are thinking about yeah, yeah. something I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective this is very new i don't think i've shared this with you yet and i'm just doing this for, for the audience that wants to to listen to this um the so it's uh it's called cosine and basically the idea is could you create a graph Based on who you actually, who people actually vouch for each other. Sure. So a scarcity based graph, you only have five picks or ten picks. If you had, remember MySpace, you know, yeah. personal top eight. If you had everyone sort of top eight yeah, professionally, yeah. if you could, if you believe that you could create that, yeah. is that valuable? Where is the value there? How do you, you know, monetize or build a business on top of that? Yeah, I mean, the the I think it's a good idea. I think the the hardest part. <laughs> <laughs> This is this is the, what it looks like, folks. Yeah, um, I think it's generally a pretty good idea. I think the the biggest challenge is will it like spread? Because yeah. if it spreads, you can solve all the other stuff, like how to monetize and all that stuff will take care of itself at scale. 
Um, like LinkedIn, when I joined LinkedIn, we had no, no revenue and right. that it was concerning in some ways, you know, as time, as sign of times in 2005, like companies that had no revenue was too close to the internet bubble collapsing. So everybody yeah. stressed about it. But if you get enough scale with professional people, with professional reputations, there's plenty of ways to monetize it. So I would just be concerned about can it actually, I mean, top eight on both Facebook yeah. and MySpace spread incredibly. I used to run the top friends app on Facebook, oh, wow. which was like a hundred million Facebook users. Wow. That, so it, it was very popular. It's very popular personally. So if you could scale it, I think you can solve all the other problems. I don't know if it'll scale though. Yeah, and that that's really that. The acid test is just. I mean, you can roll it out right now. Yeah, to see if it spreads. I mean, one good thing about that product, the question probably users will ask in the beginning is why, why to do this, and if you can come up with a, a single more like a single player mode answer. Yeah that seems compelling, then it can probably spread. Totally. I don't know how to do the single player mode answer for that one right away. Yeah. But if it does spread, then I think you, I, I could certainly figure out how to navigate the yeah. rest. Um, so if you can get to the first million, I mean, that, that, this is why I talk about LinkedIn the same way. The miracle of LinkedIn was the first 100,000 users. Mm. Now, after that, it was very obvious, like, what to do. It's just right. like, why would the first thousand people join? Like, yeah. makes no sense. Like, totally. once you have a hundred thousand people, if you want to do reference checks, you want to search for PM or search for yeah. engineer, you could find people. But the first thousand, like, what the hell? Like, why? Right. Um, yeah. makes it, it made literally irrational. Totally. Um, so that, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. the really hard challenge, but you could try it in different ways. You can kind of try somewhat different framing and yeah. see if you can get a little bit of a viral adoption. Yeah. I'll respond to this point, then we'll move on to it, uh, to a different topic. So we have three categories. It's up and comers. Uh, people who've shaped your career and work with anywhere. And the idea is that you'd want to sign an up and comer as sort of a early sure. social capital investment. So yep. 10 years from now, you co-sign me. I'm the next unicorn investor. You're an up and coming investor. You say, I discovered Eric. You build, you know, the next fund yep. manager is going to build a track record based on, Hey, I discovered Deli and I discovered Eric. I discovered next sure. Keith, et cetera. And the shape my career is sort of a form of uh, bragging, which mm -hmm. is, Hey, Eric, you know, Keith shaped my career. I'm friends with Keith, you know, and people are going to, yeah, it's thing. a good, it's a, I would just do this. I mean, I think to some extent, this is the kind of product that you just build and yeah, yeah. ship it and see what happens and then look for things that are anomalously better than you expect. Yeah. Uh, people like to do X more than you thought and they don't like to do yeah. Y. And then you know, kind of edit and revolve from there. But this is a very common reaction of mine. Um, like one of my favorite companies ever that I just invested another $60 million in. Um, Fair. Yeah. When I, when they first pitched me on this, have you heard this story? Yeah. Um, when they first pitched me on it. I looked up and I said, this is not obviously terrible, <laughs> which they now have a quote in their office. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I went from not obviously terrible to leading their seed round, co-leading their A and now leading their whatever C or D round, um, $60 million. So I can be persuaded. Yeah. And so what did they persuade you on exactly? <laughs> what was proven? The thing that they uh, persuaded me uh, – well, what do they prove out? Or? There's two things. One was a little bit of researchy kind of management consultant – stuff, which was, I mean, I was going to invest anyway, because both two of the four co-founders worked for me at Square. And so I, I kind of was looking for a reason to fund them. So like biased positively, but that's why I said it's not obviously terrible, meaning it's above bar, here's the money kind of thing. But what they discovered that wasn't obvious was that there's a financial services component to what they were doing. And then the product market founder fit was quite strong because all four of the founders had worked on things at Square and Square Capital, which is very relevant to what they do. Before, when it was more like a marketplace of like, here's these SKUs and we tell this retailer over there which of these sort of SKUs to stock, 
it was a good problem, but it wasn't directly leveraging all of their skills. I mean, there was some data science and, and Max had, you know, sold umbrellas and stuff. And it wasn't like so far off central costing, but it wasn't like right down the middle. As soon as they figured out that there's a financial services component of like basically providing financing options to our retailers, that's very attractive. That's right down the middle of what they know how to do and they know how to do better than other people in the world because that's what Square Capital does is it gives money to long tail retailers um, all the time. So then I was like, oh my God, you're the perfect people to do this. This is a great idea. Like, how do I give you more money? Um, so it can switch. There's another one I talked about occasionally publicly, a company called Wanderjomp, mm-hmm. um, some ex-DoorDash guys um, who I really liked and you know highly regarded. And again, I was kind of looking for a reason to fund them, but they walked in with an idea and they're like, we're going to build a consistent brand experience on Airbnb-like properties. And I'm like, oh my God, please don't do this. Like, do anything else and I'll give you money, but please don't do this one. <laughs> and... Michael, who's the CEO, um, finished the meeting and said, well, what would I have to prove to you that would change your mind? It's a very thoughtful question. So I looked up and I was like, okay, well, what would it be? What were they, what was underlying my, you know, almost like religiously negative reaction? And I was like, one, two, three, like, show me this, this, and this. So he walks away. Thank you. You know, et cetera. About a month goes by and he like emails me. He's like, okay. I've proven those things, you know, can we get together? Yeah. I'm like, sure. So he shows up and in a very coherent, incredibly um, thoughtful Jack walks me through the evidence of all these three things. I'm like, okay, here's your money. Yeah. I, I promised you if you can prove it. I um, so I led the seed round and then led, um, recently led another round actually at Founders Fund. Yeah. I wonder what he would have said if you had reversed the question and said, what would need to be true for you to stop working on this idea? Yeah, that's probably not that useful. Um, <laughs> um, that the founders don't usually like react that well yeah. to that. Um, it partially it's their baby. I mean, I think sometimes you have to let someone chase their yeah. dream a little bit. More often than not, they'll realize yeah. that they're hitting some, you know, pretty significant friction and they'll come back to you and say, what do right. I do? Versus like, sometimes you have to suffer a little bit with a problem before you're willing to take alternative ideas right. into account. Totally. So it's sometimes better to let people go chase an idea for yeah. a while. I want to talk about uh, regulated markets and sure. then uh, and then frontier markets. So so maybe regulated, you know, putting your investor hat on. You, a lot of people are exploring ideas in, in healthcare, sure. in in fintech, where you've built and invested in a bunch of companies. What are you know things to look out for there? Do's or don'ts that are absolutely necessary. So I love regulated markets. I love those that have legal risk, partially the virtue of being a lawyer, uh, or no longer a lawyer, but having been a lawyer. Or recovery lawyer or something is actually I like the more legal risk the better because I feel like I have a competitive or comparative advantage assessing legal risk than all the other VCs. So I don't have to call up some expert and say, "Hey, what do you think of this?" Yeah. And the expert lawyer is like, "Oh, it's really risky. That doesn't really help you." So I can do the business analysis and the legal thinking in my own brain, mm-hmm. and so not accidentally, financial services and healthcare are areas I love to invest in. It's not like I don't think it's random. So the more legal risk in some ways, the better. Um, if you walk in and say, right. hey, this is what I'm arbitraging. This is how I'm going to solve it. I'm like paying much more attention than usual yeah. like, just hearing that. Um, but that said, you're going to run into some investors, especially in early days, um, that are going to be immediately allergic. Yeah. Because what they're going to do is call some lawyer friend of theirs up. And the lawyer is going to be like, here's all the seven things that go wrong. And it's going to be pretty hard to convince them to take the risk on you unless you already have some traction. Or unless the VC has already funded something somewhat comparable. Right. And so when the lawyer says, here's all the seven things that are going to go wrong, they know how to say, you know what? Those six, I don't care about those. Those aren't going to really happen. I care about this one. So right. let's talk about this one. Yeah. If you don't, if you can't isolate the VC's brain down to like, here's, there's one core thing, 
they're never going to invest. Right. I actually dealt with one of these today where somewhat different problem, but the XYC company came to me for advice more than money, actually, truthfully. Like, um, YC owners yep. had sent them to me and they're going to want to raise money. And I said, look, there's only six VCs you can pitch. Because if someone hasn't funded something in this space before, yeah. there's too many complexities to what you're doing. You're never going to get the partner comfortable enough that they understand all these moving pieces. And certainly when they go talk to their other partners, the other partners are going to barf. Right. So these six VCs, though, have funded comparable companies. So the kinds of problems they're going to scare people, they already have in their portfolio. Yeah. Was so it like they'll a space be, company? Or what no, no, no. It's financial. It's like generally financial services. Okay. But it, it's just edgy enough where it's just yeah. enough combination of complicated things and you Trying to teach it to someone who hasn't experienced it before, they're just going to get terrified of all these things that could go wrong. And so I was like, fortunately for you, there's several successful companies that have comparable components, but you need to go find a VC who has one of those components in their portfolio. Yeah. And what about take out legal risk? What about sort of business model risk? Like some people are loath to fund sort of EMR companies or companies that sell to providers generally or, or lending businesses. I love lending businesses. I mean, we fund both at KV and at Founders Fund, companies that I call it, like use debt as oxygen companies. So the art to those is really twofold. Do you have some asymmetric ability to price the debt? Yeah. And that's easier said than done. But if you do, it's great because there's infinite sources of debt in the world at the moment. And if you have an asymmetric ability to price it, you're going to earn a lot of money. Yeah. Um, then you need a distribution strategy. They're somewhat related, but they're somewhat orthogonal. Financial services is a big market, but very competitive. There's lots of people have a lot of money. They spend a lot of money on marketing. So you need some thoughtful way to distribute the product. If you have an answer to both, underwriting advantage and some distribution advantage, then I'd, I'd love to invest and would yeah. do it all day long. A firm had both yeah. from the beginning. Are you opening your aperture a little bit to global? I'm curious, are there sort of companies where it's like, hey, this business model makes a lot of sense, like a firm for Latin America? Not me personally, but I think at FF, we are certainly looking more globally, uh, more frequently. Yeah, I, I like generally companies that I can yeah. work with the founders pretty actively. Yeah. And it with distance and with time zone differences, it's just very difficult to be an active consigliere. We have funded, uh, you know, I'm pushing the envelope here. I funded three companies in New York now. Oh, so wow. I'm really, I'm, <laughs> I've gone from you must be within 30 miles yeah. to 2,547 miles. Yeah. So, you know, I'll probably do more of that. But as a fund, we're definitely open totally. to more. We've had some success. We funded New Bank in Latin America that's yeah. done well. We funded a few that look promising. So we're trying to find ways to do yeah. more. What would need to be true for you to believe that remote first companies can make sense? Or do you think that that's good? Opinion? Well, we funded at uh, KV um, from the very beginning, right out of YC, uh, Git, GitLab, yeah. um, which is remote first. Yeah. And it's done phenomenally well. I think it's going to be larger and more successful than Git, 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 wow. Git, uh, GitHub. Yeah. So it's possible. I think it depends a little bit on the shot you're taking, which is if you kind of know what you need to build, it might work fine. And, yeah. you know, the more San Francisco messes things up with various crazy policies and people, the more it's going to just force this. Yeah. Um, and it may not just, it just may be a uh, not a choice anymore. But if you know what you're building, I think you can probably do it remotely. But a lot of company building is sort of brainstorming, yeah. sort of serendipitous conversations that lead to, well, what if we mix this product over here with this product over there and change this? That's a lot harder to do. Yeah. Um, so once I guess it's once either you have a clear product market fit, you you know how to get product market fit, it's much easier to envision this. Yeah. Also a management technique skill thing. 
first-time managers, a lot of companies that have done very well have first-time managers. Managing the people sitting next to you is pretty damn hard, just like yeah. when they're, they're sitting next to you. The more you've developed the skill of man, of managing, extending it, you know, to people you yeah. don't see and work with every day might be uh, much more you know, tractable. Bill Gurley, I think, in an interview many years ago, said that as software continues to eat the world and we you know invest in you know physical businesses, that we settle for lower margins. And so I'm curious, would you have done WeWork? Uh, how, how do you make sense of, of what's happening with WeWork? How do you make sense of sort of Ben Thompson's sort of neither nor post about what is or isn't a tech company? Do- yeah, I love, well, I love Ben Thompson's, po- I love all Ben Thompson's posts, but certainly love, really, really highly recommend the, the post on how to think through what's a tech company, what's a tech enabled company, what's the criteria, how should they be valued? It's the canonical piece on the topic. But it's probably better to read that in the original versus like me try to distill it. Um, second, I don't think margins matter as much as people think. Hmm. I think that cash flow matters and it's somewhat different. So let me give you an example. Imagine you have a business that kicks off, call it 10%, which is a low margin, but it grows to be 10% of everything on the planet. Hmm. Let's call it Visa. You can be a pretty big business. So the question isn't the margin measured as a percentage. It's how, how much of a tax are you kind of, what's the, are you taxing enough set of things yeah. and, and what's the expense and friction of putting that tax in the first place? So yeah. if you have to spend a lot of money to create the visa, getting back paid little micro pennies at a time, that's very expensive because you have to raise a lot of capital before it really offsets. Yeah. And that, that's why margin margin in some ways isn't like crazy to think about because it's a rough proxy for how fast you pay back the expenditure of capital. If, on the other hand, you have a very like, – let's take your LinkedIn example. That's not going to cost you any money to spread. Whether it pays back one cent or ten cents or a dollar per whatever, it just doesn't matter because you haven't spent anything up front. The only expenditure is like whoever engineers and designers built the damn thing, and that's like almost like a fixed cost. Then it's going to be marginally free. Yeah. So if you could capture one cent on every hiring decision, yeah, it sounds like low, but how many hiring decisions are there a year times how many years? It it just doesn't matter because there's no payback problem. But a lot of people have to use money. It's more true than false that you have to use money to spread to customers and users. If you do, then you need to worry about how fast does that money come back to you because otherwise you're going to be raising money infinitely. So to me, it's a function of what's the cost of acquiring a customer. And as that approaches zero, then the concern about the margin also approaches zero. And if the cost of acquiring a customer is very expensive, then you need to worry very – not how many, not, again, not a percentage, but how many dollars come back to you in terms of, it's almost like contribution profit dollars mm. is probably the right metric. Of like how many dollars come back to the company for everything we do. And then against the friction of getting that contribution relationship started. Totally. Back to frontier markets for a second. How do you think about sort of you know, emerging space, crypto, VR, AR, other sort of emerging technologies and platforms when people identify, like, how do you think about timing or... Well, again, not being a top-down investor, I don't have like strong, you know, religious views on most of those topics. I do think that the key is sequencing progress for those companies. Those companies need to be able to show progress at the same pace as all other companies because you're competing for roughly the same talent. So you're not going to run out of money as much as you're going to demoralize your employees if you can't make progress at a fast enough pace. But the progress milestones – don't have to be customers. Yep. They can be technical progress. They basically, again, I'd go to the whiteboard. What are the biggest risks to this business? And a lot of them are not going to be customer-based. Some of the actually hard tech companies often, there's no customer risk. They think rockets. 
typically these companies have hundreds of millions of dollars in orders. The only question is, can they put the damn rocket in space without blowing up? Yeah. But they'll, they'll have billions of dollars of contracts like overnight if they can do that reliably. So the hard part is proving at small doses of capital or relatively compressed doses of capital with a relatively compressed time frame in a hot labor market that you can you can actually deliver the product per spec. Yep. So I think that's the only thing I care about is what what are the milestones and how fast can you achieve them against what dose of time and money do you need to prove those milestones? Yeah. I want to end on a sort of uplifting note, you know, deeply re- relevant to our entrepreneurs. So I'll sort of a couple of questions I have for you. One is, is Warren going to win in 2020? <laughs> it, what's happening? If, is Facebook going to get broken up? Is the U S on the downturn? Um, oh, easy. These are going to be really yeah. easy. Um, <laughs> what's, I haven't heard you talk about politics in a while, so maybe you know predictions for the next couple of years. I don't think Warren's going to be the nominee. Really? No. Who? I think I've said for wow. you know, nine months, 10 months, 11 months, Bujek's going to be the nominee. Best call of my career because I predicted it like February last year. Yeah. But yeah, I'd say now it's actually becoming more like realistic. Everybody, thought, everybody really thought I was insane. No, Adrian. <laughs> no, Andrew Yang. I know you hate UBS. No, he's not. That, that, I mean, he's doing better than expected, truthfully. Like, his, like if he was a startup, yeah. like, actually his progress yeah, against metrics is yeah. actually quite good. Yeah. <laughs> and that is the right way we should think about these people as startups, right? To some extent, but this is a very binary. So it's like a startup with a binary outcome, yeah. though. And so there are some dimensions. And there's yeah. also a very finite other thing that people forget about sometimes for Silicon Valley is all elections have a very finite uh, yeah. deadline. Like it doesn't matter if you would have won the race a week later. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's one day you get measured at, so it, it is different. But um, okay, yeah, Bujeg will be the I think will be the nominee. Uh, if Warren's the nominee, she's definitely going to lose. I mean, I think people are also figuring that out. Starting actually this morning, um, New York Times even figured it out. If it's certainly going to affect if she were to win, it would definitely affect Silicon Valley a lot. Yeah, it depends also what happened. The subtle nuances depends what would happen to the Senate. Yeah, because you can imagine a scenario where the Democrats elect a president, but the Senate is still Republican. In which case. Nothing radical is going to change in terms of tax yeah. code. So unless there's like a macro wave that changes the Senate composition to be a majority Democrat with the Warren presidency, that would absolutely change Silicon Valley, though, a fair amount pretty quickly. Uh, how do you think about the tech lash? Does that continue? It feels like big tech is at war with big government. I don't know if that's true. I think this is a journalist-inspired you know, crusade talked about two years ago with Kara right. Swisher yeah. um, is – I think journalists are just jealous of tech companies. and Because they're direct competitors. Well, they're direct competitors. They've lost their gatekeeping role. They also see people they went to college with making a lot of money. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of reasons. So I, I think most of this is fiction. That said, you know, if you hear it enough, it's like stereo surround sound. But yeah. if you look at the polls, like there's all kind, there's some rigorous method of research on this. Other than Facebook, if you look at the popularity of any other tech company, pick your favorite ones, Amazon on down. Yeah. You cannot find any change in the popularity of those companies over the last five years. Facebook definitely has had material changes in its popularity. But that's not a tech backlash. That's a Facebook backlash. And, um, you know, you can argue why is that, is that, you know, should it be the case, whatever. But fundamentally, like these polls are taken every year. And and the the three of the five, currently, the three of the five most admired companies in the U.S. are tech companies. It seems pretty inconsistent, um, you know, with this tech backlash. Um, also, when I travel, certainly when I travel outside New York or San Francisco, tech is still very aspirational. Like yeah. all my high school friends, for example, right. want their kids to get into tech. Like yeah. I get constantly like asked, you know, when I run into high school friends, like how do you get in tech, blah, blah, blah. It's yeah. like 
This is like normal New Jersey middle right. class. Yeah. Like it's totally aspirational. Are we in a stagnation? Do you expect this to continue? How do you think about the the possibility of a downturn? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't predict like macro markets. I mean, that's like almost like a fool's errand. And certainly I'm not qualified to do that. But I think like I like Peter's statement on this, which is we're 10 years closer to whatever recession we're going to have than we used to be. <laughs> um, but like, and, you know, is there asymmetric downside to the economy? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, that's probably a fair statement. If you think totally. in terms of probability, if you do this kind of probabilistic analysis, how much better can the economy get versus would it get worse? Certainly the trade stuff, even if wise, meaning like the substantive trade policies of the U.S. government may make sense geopolitically, but they're going to have right. absolutely um, a fetter on the economy. So the decision to confront China may be very, very wise, yep. but it's going to have a drag coefficient in economic performance in the yep. short term. And that's probably inescapable. Does China overtake the U.S. in global superpower in the next decade? Depends. Um, I think that... It's a function of whether the U.S. pays attention. And, you know, to his credit, one of the things I think Trump has been – there's two things that Trump's been extremely astute about that most people, even a majority of people in Silicon Valley would probably have to give him credit for. Trade? Confronting China, not trade per se. I think free trade is probably still more popular here than certainly in the administration. But I think people neglected the threat that China poses on several dimensions for a very long time. And um, that's probably been a good thing to pay attention to it and and, and start um, the analysis and um, very careful analysis of what China's up to and why. Secondly is on the FDA. The FDA has been much more progressive and innovative in approving um, novel ways to treat people and improve people's lives. Like, they're very thoughtful actually now. If you wanted to submit data that suggested that you had this product that would diagnose a heart attack better than a cardiologist or yeah. cancer earlier than a, you know an oncologist – the FDA is very receptive and very thoughtful about how they look at those metrics and they will, yeah. they will approve things that don't require traditional doctors. So I think the innovation in medicine has actually been pretty good under the Trump administration and will continue. A little bit of liberalization in financial services of the availability perhaps of bank charters to startups, which yeah. has been basically impossible in the US for like the last 15 years, um, unlike in Europe, appears to be no, nobody's. None of the U.S. company startups have yet been granted a charter. Yeah. Um, several are publicly working on it, you know, Square, et cetera. But I think if Trump wins re-election, almost surely some startups that we're all familiar with will wind up with bank charters, which yeah. would be somewhat progressive. Yeah. In contrast to China, which is you know poster child for centralization. The biology turned me on to Sovereign Individual. Oh, yeah. Uh, and many others. Yeah, the 1998 book that's incredibly yeah. prescient. Yes. And, uh, basic thesis is that we're going to change from citizens of, of governments. We exist to serve governments to customers of governments where governments exist to serve us. And so the implications of that is that there will be markets for, for governance and, uh, the world might look like increasingly decentralized city states. Is that a world over the next 50 years that makes sense for you or? I think the logic is, the logic is pretty powerful and certainly the predictive ver I mean, yeah. the book's amazing in terms of predicting things, um, you know, 20 years in advance, which is rare. The question is, what's the catalyzing function? A lot of things, there's inertia and same thing is true of startups. Inverting inertia is really hard. And I don't see too much evidence that it's in, that part's inverting. I think the logic of why it should invert. The negative reaction to centralized governments is clear. I mean, populism yeah. in some ways is a revolt against that. But what catalyzes it into a constructive sort of decentralized nation state environment, I don't know. Yeah. Clippers, Lakers, who you got in the NBA this year? 
Oh, man. My Knicks are still terrible. <laughs> now, at least we have the Warriors yeah, now yeah, to be totally. commiserating. Yes. But, um, the, yeah, the Knicks one day. Yeah, I think we'll have central decentralized nation states <laughs> before, the be, before the Knicks win something. Yeah, I, I, I watched the games. Knicks have had a chance to win every single game this year and lost it within the last two minutes. That's actually, in some ways, that's actually progress. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean, like, if you read the score takes care of itself, yeah. like, if, which is the fundamental, you know, book by Bill Walsh about how to build a company. Well, it's how to build a football team yeah. program, but how to build a company in my, my view. If you really take that seriously, that is actually progress. Yeah. Because his basic point is if you do everything the right way and constantly master it, eventually you're going to win. Yeah. And so if you go from like losing games by yeah. like a large amount to losing them by a small amount and you continue to make progress, yeah. then that will eventually mean you win a lot of games. Totally. James Dolan, if you're listening to this, trade sell Julius Randle. <laughs> sell, sell the team. Um, Eric's buying. Yes, exactly. Okay. So uh, in closing – I'll ask you a personal question. How do you think about maximizing your own learning between you read a lot, you, you talk to a lot of smart people? What do you, what patterns have you sort of found? And then another thing that, you know, close mutual friends will tell me about you is that you sort of, this is sort of a oxymoron for you in some ways, but mellowed out a little bit in, in the last five years, last decade, perhaps, oh, no. relative to where you used to be. Does that resonate with you? Um, in reverse order, I think it's easy to be mellow as a VC, truthfully. Yeah. I don't know if it's, <laughs> I don't know. It's like age. It's just that operating, operating, running something is a really hard job. Actually, yeah. truthfully, you're always under constant stress. You have constant fires you're fighting. Yeah. Venture moves. Venture is a difficult job. It's not actually easy necessarily to be successful as a venture investor, but it's a pretty predictable pace, and yeah. you rarely have urgent crises. Yeah. And so you can be a little bit more quote unquote mellow, and it may, yeah. that may be optical, you know, sort of versus role specific versus the constant. It's like you know, if you're coaching a football team. In the NFL, it's probably not the least mellow job you can yeah. have on the planet versus if you were scouting for an yeah. NFL team. It's a lot easier to be mellow because people – you write these reports and then someone yeah. acts on it, et cetera. So it's a bit like that. Um, it's really hard to manage like hundreds of people all the time. Um, one of the reasons why people sometimes quit and you know become VCs. Yeah, the negative, that's the positive version. The negative version would be like, it's too many years in California. So I grew up on the East Coast where everybody, yeah. nobody's mellow. Totally. Um, everybody's fast talker, fast thinker. And, you know, mellow is like a, definitely a negative pejorative. Uh, but, you know, 19 years here, uh, maybe you start, you know, becoming more Californian. Um, I don't, so I don't think you're about, slowing down too much. No, I've certainly signed, uh, I've led more investments, uh, over the last seven years than any other VC and by a lot. And I think um, probably every year have led more VC uh, more investments of like above like two or three million dollars in every other VC. Do you think you'll be doing that for the next ten years, twenty years? That is a great question. Not of Elizabeth Warren's president, <laughs> um, but um, yeah. And then on the other topic, I like to read. I mean, yeah. fundamentally, the way I learn new things is mostly reading. It's just such a high leverage activity. I love to read. If I could find more time to read, I would. It, that that's where I sacrifice the most. Is yeah. It's easy to eat up junk food with meetings and workouts and other things. Yeah. Um, reading is the substance and uh, it, there's always an excuse not to read. Yeah. Is there any last, uh, last words that come to mind for this on deck audience on, you know, people starting their companies, thinking about different spaces, anything we didn't touch? Well, that? I mean, this may not be in your self interest, but. I wouldn't be afraid of joining something yeah. either. Like I think that's you know we kind of glossed over this, and one of yeah, the reasons why we had EIRs at KV was that if you find somebody else who has a great idea and a great vision that yeah. that resonates with you and people that you think you can work with and learn from, that may be a better choice. Like the need to be a founder to be a founder, I think is a bad idea. Um, and so EIRs typically are set up to both investigate their own ideas. 
and also meet with a lot of companies that come in that might be a good fit for their skills. And so I wouldn't like over jump into I must be the founder yeah. versus I can find this this climate change company. You know, that's really important to me. Great. I didn't know that existed. Wow, these people are really smart. I could learn from them and work with them. Yeah. So I would look for opportunities like that as well and treat them like equally um, versus having a strong like bias to I must found. Yeah. I love that. And, and maybe last thing is, is obviously what's your advice for, for on deck itself as we're building this, this fellowship out? Like when right now it's like, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I'll come give a talk. But when is it like, Oh wow, that's really interesting. Like what do you think is sort of the inflection point for us or the key? Well, the key is ultimately for me being a people based investor. We didn't talk that much about it. We talked about it in a prior podcast at length. What does that mean? Like what's the criteria for founders, exceptional, exceptional founders? The key is when does it become a magnet for people who are going to be exceptional founders or exceptional early stage executives? Yep. And that's what I spend you know, most of my time trying to do is meet people, ideally meet them before other people. I mean, yeah. we talk about undiscovered talent like at length in yeah. other podcasts, but fundamentally my job is to find undiscovered talent before other people find them. And yeah. there's lots of smart people that I compete with. They're actually pretty good at what they do. And so the only way I can stay relevant is to find the next you know, generation of smart, talented, potential proto-entrepreneurs um, before my competitors figure out who they are. Yeah. Um, so if you become a magnet for them, then I'll move in here or something. Yeah. <laughs> Put a camera in. Yes. Face recognition from China. Exactly. Be great. <laughs> Hopefully some, some of them are here. Uh, everyone, please give a round of applause for Keith. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.